Hi, welcome to the Penis Project podcast. This is the place to come to find out everything you've always wanted to know about men's health but were too embarrassed to ask. Join physiotherapist Dr. Joe Milios and sexologist nurse practitioner Melissa Hadley Barrett as they talk to real men and the experts about men's private parts. Have a burning question you really want to know the answer to? Please subscribe to our website at thepenisproject.org and ask us. The greater the strength, the more time I've got for you. There's too much talking, texting, tweeting, posting. Too much noise altogether. In silence is strength and peace and space. Imagine silence forever. The Penis Project podcast is proudly supported and sponsored by Prost, Exercise for Prostate Cancer Incorporated, a not-for-profit charity set up in 2012 by myself. If you want to know any more information about Prost, including our online service now available, please just go to prost.com.au. Prost means cheers to your health, so Prost Hello, welcome to the Penis Project podcast. Today we have Mr. Positive Penis, which is quite interesting because he's had a bit of a rough ride actually, particularly when it comes to continence issues. So we're going to talk about that and find out how he's still so positive regardless of the rough ride that he's had. So Mr. Positive Penis Man was diagnosed with prostate cancer and that was back in about December 2018, is that correct? October. October. And we first met um, for your first ever pre-operative physiotherapy consult in December and you had your operation the following February. So we had six or seven weeks of pre-operative pelvic floor muscle training, which to me is the perfect sort of um, leading time. So you worked with a urologist who was very proactive and um, he was you know, very keen for you to commence some physiotherapy prior to the forthcoming surgery. And I always ask, how did that make you feel when you had that opportunity? Did you did you think there'd be any link between physiotherapy and your prostate cancer surgery? Um, not beforehand. Uh, I hadn't really thought about my pelvic floor beforehand, quite frankly. Um, I think a lot of blokes don't really... Did you know you had one? Probably um, never thought about it, so the answer is probably I don't know. So yes, it was new. It was new territory for me. However, as you know, I've got physiotherapy connections with a wife and a daughter, and now a granddaughter studying physiotherapy. Oh, really? Uh, so I'm quite used to working with physios and being in physio conversation. So it was good to be introduced to a new muscle group and do some work on it. And it, it fitted because I have always been fit and, and active. So why not? Sure. Well, my role as the physiotherapist in um, seeing you was to basically educate you on pelvic floor muscle training to give the opportunity to have a little bit of an anatomy lesson and to gain some awareness about the actual function of the pelvic floor in relationship to the impending likelihood of urinary incontinence and erectile dysfunction, which is linked up with um, pelvic floor muscle um, work. So your operation all went very well. And you had the open radical prostatectomy and you would have had the catheter in for about a two-week period. That's right. And then once the catheter was removed, I usually like to see patients within a week of doing the surgery. And with having six weeks sort of leading time for pelvic floor muscle training, I usually expect patients to be already doing pretty well with continence control. But right from the very beginning, I'm not sure if it was so easy for you. Can you remember and tell us... What was going on for you? Um, no, it wasn't easy. One, I was still pretty sore because uh, it was open surgery. Um, but uh, I also had a couple of early urinary tract infections. So for my first couple of months, I had those to set me back. Um, so that meant feeling like getting into activity uh, was hard. However, because I'm usually very active and because I expected a quick recovery, uh, for me, it was a bit of a setback because I expected to go charging into things. I was and... just about to ask that. I was just about to say, you were shocked, weren't you? Because I know when I yeah. first met you, you were shocked that you hadn't recovered quick because you've been so healthy and so active. Yep. Yep. So I got a surgeon who works on this, what I think is a terrific uh, notion that uh, 
give me your life for three months and I'll give it back to you for 10 years. That's basically the notion. So um, fit, active. Lean, um, very lean. Um, a lean machine. Three months, <laughs> I'll nail it. That, that's my normal expectation. That's the way I go about life. So I wasn't, there wasn't any great doubt in my mind that uh, it will, all would go well. Okay, so I'm referring back to my notes from when we met the first post-operative consultation and you were feeling very leaky. You are getting up three or four times a night. You were sore, as you mentioned, and you are wearing three or four big pads, the level three pads per 24 hours. We weren't actually measuring it at that stage, which we got on to later, but you were pretty wet down there. So we went and had urinary tests and found that you did have a urinary tract infection. And so that often makes the leakage worse. And not only did we have to sort of address that once, but we also had to address that twice. So right from the very outset, you had a bit of a a rocky road with even having your bladder happy to even want to hold anything onto it. Can I just ask a quick question there? Did you have the normal urinary tract symptoms like of pain and difficulty urinating, like urinating and smelly wee, or you didn't notice any of that? Um, the The first one... I was actually just feeling very off colour and I knew I wasn't well. Mm-hmm. And so we actually got in a locum and he said, I think it could be a, a UTI and if it is, you don't want it. So let's treat it as if it is. Mm-hmm. And then when we did the, the, um, the, the test, we discovered I did. So he was on the money. So he was, uh, I was lucky that I got a very experienced and uh, intuitive um, GP. And the second one was a bit hard to pick as well. So... No, I didn't actually tick the classic symptoms mm. for, for urinary tract infections. So I, I, my suggestion would be if, if people are not feeling things are not right and they're not feeling well, um, then get it checked out just in case. Yeah. And is that something you find often, Joe? like that when people have UTIs post this, they don't have the normal symptoms? Well, I'm always expecting patients to get better and I routinely see patients once a fortnight and normally that's at sort of week two, week four, week six if they're not progressing at any of those stages between like that two-week visit, um, I start screening for UTIs just through my mm. questions, like have you had any, mm. you know, even show of uh, streaks of blood mm. in, the, in the urine um, or just general changes of feeling, hot, cold, unwell, um, lethargy. But, yeah, probably about one-third of the time there's no such um, symptoms, obviously, but I'm always on the alert and probably only 50% of the surgeons I work with actually do a routine um, urine test once the, the catheters are taken out. And that's something I think we probably need a little bit more um, education on. So pretty much nine times out of ten when I suspect a UTI, it comes up with one. But, um, yeah, there can be these silent ones as well that just stop um, someone from progressing like I expect them to because with the pelvic floor muscle training preparation before like you did, it should actually take only about three months for the muscle to build up enough sort of bulk and hypertrophy and then it's just a case of um, adjusting to whatever activities you normally do. So, yeah, it, it, it's always a little bit of an alarm bell when someone's not progressing. Mm. Okay. So moving to where you were, um, two months down the track, post-operative you are still on antibiotics mm. so we i always say to my patients whilst you have an infection we're basically not even um at ground zero and so once we've had the infection cleared with and it really should be if you do get an infection for those listening you must have a subsequent urine test to clear that because that seems to be a little bit of a hit and miss thing as well so we sometimes have patients have ongoing infections for three four five months because they didn't get that follow-up one and um I always think it's better to have two courses of antibiotics from observation rather than one as well because these can be a bit stubborn. It's usually because of the catheterization process um, but also wearing lots of pads is a bit of a environment for um, bacteria to develop as well. So we do see the E. coli bug uh, which comes from the bowel as well that can have a little bit of an impact um, at times and, and yeah, the, the whole pad hygiene when they're very wet needs to be really considered as a priority as well. So we really didn't get off to the happiest of start, but moving forward about six months down the track, do you remember how you were feeling when still you were leaking quite heavily? 
Um, obviously not very uh, impressed with what was happening, but I'd already, I was back into, into swimming. That's always been part of my lifestyle. So swimming was, was, was happening. That was basically training back in the pool. Uh, and, and I was doing some walking, which is one of my other passions. However, <laughs> walking was when it was actually at its worst. So, um, and it was, it was variable. So I'd have some good days where I'd think I'm on the, on the money and things are on the improve. And then I just have a, a really bad day or a really bad few days. So um, the progression was gradual. If you drew a line, sort of drew a graph, but um, the reality was it was very inconsistent and unpredictable. So when you say really bad days, how many pads are we still talking? Uh, generally, I'd sort of manage to depend how active sort of a day I had where mm. I was out and about a lot because uh, I was slowly working sort of part-time, which is what I do anyway with my business. Um, so generally I'd have a couple of twos and a three. That would be a, a, a normal well, day. Yeah. I've even written here that you did shift from the threes, three, three, three level threes a day, yeah. and you went up to five level two pads a day. So you might not remember <laughs> some I of had, these. I had forgotten that. You do forget those things. Yeah. You like to forget those things. Yeah. yeah. And I always think it's also helpful to know that the number of pads, although it might give a reflection of, you know, someone's leaking a lot. Mm. Some people actually have one drop in there and they change their pad. Mm. Others might wear, I often say, one pad that dangles between their knees before they even think about changing it. So the only yeah. true way to know how much you're leaking yeah. as individual is to yeah. physically weigh the pad. So I got you doing that. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that process. <laughs> God. Well, it's, it was educational because then it actually did give a far more accurate reading. Um, so when we were trying to look at the, the, the variations, that, that was the big the big thing so and I can't quite, I did actually keep all the details you know I kept daily records which is oh yeah some but some, some people uh, might find that a bit odd but um, I actually found it useful because I could actually see what was happening and I could see well am I trending up or am I trending down I was very active that day or I wasn't very active that day so it gave me a real handle on what was yeah. going on so it's called a bladder um, diary and the bladder diary basically looks at what you drink mm. and what your output is so mm. you can actually this is do it really mm. um Formally, uh, everything you drink, everything you empty. Mm. So we would use it in a measuring jug, mm. uh, measuring any volume of urine output. We would do an activity chart. So if it was a hiking, swimming day versus a day of watching um, Netflix. Mm. But then the pad weight is actually removing the wet pad mm. at the end of the day and measuring that minus mm. the dry pad weight. So if it was a 25-gram pad, that's dry, but there was a 100 grams in total at the end of the day it would be a 75 gram net weight and one gram equals one mil so depending on how many pads you might have used in the day we tally that up and yeah that variation i'm trying to find in your notes the highest gram weight that we ever recorded but um while i'm doing that do you have any recollections (laughs) uh well i know i was up around the 200 when i was having not good days um but then the next day might be 30. So that was, it was that sort of variation. And it was so day. variable, wasn't it? Yeah. And that, that was the hard part. So depending on how much you were out and where you were going. So if you're going out for an hour, that was, that was okay. But if you're going to get on the train, go to the football, enjoy the footy, get excited to the footy, <laughs> do all those other things, then get on the train, depending come on all your the team. way back, etc. Um, there was a couple of mishaps there that weren't much fun. So you're, you are Mr Positive, Mr P, did you feel down at any stage? Like, did this get you down? Um, in hindsight, I'd say yes. Mm. At the time, um, my, my, my approach, I've got a nickname of, of Happy Jack. Um, <laughs> but it's not my day, that's what a lot of people call me. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, and that can be in the craziest situation when you're trekking through mud or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. That's just my sort of approach to most things. Um, so, um, it's probably fair to say the happy Jack wasn't as happy as normal. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's always the other good things. Uh, like you would be, I'd still be enjoying my work. I'd still be enjoying time with people. Um, I could still enjoy the swimming. Didn't enjoy too much of the walking, but there's always things happening. So that would, that would be the difference. Um, the other thing is, so I'm a leadership coach and I work with coaches as well as my clients. So I've got other people that are around me that actually support me and 
And I would talk about things. I could do self-coaching, so I did do a bit of self-coaching. But I should say that coaches, we, we do work on the premise that self-coaching is not recommended. Mm. Um, okay. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> better working with, with somebody else. I did get a bit of time where I spent with a couple of friends and colleagues. And we just coached, which is very different to counselling or going into that space. And that's more likely to support me to be uh, have a more enthusiastic, positive approach to things mm-hmm. just because of the nature of what you work on and, and how you work. So I suppose the retrospective view is that one of my really good friends and colleagues, I do a lot of work with her um, uh, as, as business partners. And when I finally got to the happy end of all this, uh, what I started out calling the adventure, I'm not too sure that's the thing. <laughs> that was my brand when I thought I'm going to keep a diary of this adventure. That was straight after surgery. So now you need to change uh, it to the ordeal. Uh, yeah, I try not to use the language. <laughs> but, what positive language, uh, yeah. But the really interesting thing is, um, and, and there's a very difference between positive thinking and the stuff that used to go on back in the 80s to actually positive language and mm. positive psychology and those sorts of areas. Um, but the really interesting was she said afterwards, it's great to have you back. Ah. It's the normal lightness and the normal happy jack. No matter how much work you did back then, we could see what was going on. Yeah. Okay. And, and when did that comment come about? Was that just very recently? That was after I got through the the, uh, the surgery for the sling and I got, you know, since got my life back. Okay, so that's really 18 months later that mm-hmm. Happy Jack mm-hmm. came back. Yep. So I'm once again just referring to your notes and it appears that you had a, a 380 gram day at one point, so even double what you... I've forgotten that, yeah. Okay. Double what you... Um, <laughs> so along the way, we did try a few different things. Mm-hmm. We tried a dribble stop. A penile clamp. Mm-hmm. How did that work for you? Uh, it worked actually very well. Uh, so I used it just to see what impact it could have and how effective it was. And so it was just initially just experimenting and it was very effective. I was very aware of the not overuse. However, then um, I think with your tacit support, we then put it to the test. So I went overseas for seven weeks to Europe in those days when we could. August, September, October. <laughs> what? Uh, I can't remember 2019. that. <laughs> the 19. Yeah, uh, the seven countries, seven weeks, uh, huge amount of physical activity, particularly one of the classic ridge walks in Norway. And and I had I used that five out of every seven days and I used it a lot. Um, and it's the only reason I could enjoy the trip. So it was incredibly effective um, and I'd use it in very demanding circumstances. Um, so it stood the test. And and I actually use it as a training device as well. Mm. So what I my theory is that if you clamp off the uh, bladder um, and you wear one of these penile clamps, that it gives the bladder a chance to stretch back out and for the pelvic floor muscles to adapt to a heavier load again. And my general um, protocol with it is to wear it six days a week for the um, active hours, never to wear it at night. We might have a whole um, discussion about that in another podcast. Just just for people listening who don't know what a penile clamp is, it's the way you can imagine it. If anyone's seen those little plastic things you get in Coles or Woolies that you put on your bread or something like that and they snap together to hold your plastic bags sealed, they're like one of those and you put it across your penis and snap it shut. must have been a bit scary the first time you went to use that. And I didn't quite get it right at the start, so you can do a bit of damage very quickly. Right. So you do have to watch that. Um, And you have to follow the instructions, so you have to release the pressure every couple of hours. Yeah, we we have a two-hour. It just gives you the window of opportunity to, you know, have a a bit of a quality of life. Mm. Even if you just use it temporarily for like a game of golf, Mm. just enables the the whole process to stop so you can get on um, what you need to do and then empty. But, yeah, we try and have a sort of a two-hour window between emptying, but usually a, a maximum of four hours between emptying. You simply unclip and then put it straight back on again. But um, when you came back from that holiday, as was um, the result of many of my patients who do this long-term, your, your actual leakage dropped down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you recall that. No, no, I do recall that. We thought we were moving in the right direction and I, and I guess we were. Uh, so I'd had a fantastic time while I was away mm. and I'd had experienced what it was almost like to go back to normal. Yeah. Uh, but it's only a temporary aid. That's all it is. Yeah. So then we thought, well, we're getting somewhere. By this stage we were down to leakage levels around 80 to 100 
um, ideal worst days and we thought it might be a good idea to incorporate some whole body exercise training and that's when we introduced you to Beck Forster, our Pilates and fitness coach physiotherapist and she commenced you on a very rigorous exercise program and it was very much Pilates based, incorporating the, the whole pelvic floor training. What feedback do you have to give us on that more advanced approach to whole body exercise training with pelvic floor involvement? Um, first of all, I loved it because I did one-on-one with Beck. Yeah. Uh, and I can't speak highly enough of Beck, so uh, don't hesitate if you get the opportunity to spend <laughs> some time with her, uh, individually or in a, in a group. Um, but because it was so individualised, it was fantastic um, because I was missing uh, my norm, more normal heavy exercise routine. Sure. It was terrific to, to get in and actually do more exercise. Uh my physio wife was very impressed with a couple of the exercises. So, Great. Um, she thought they were just for general purposes, quite apart from my specific things. Um, so I really loved working with her. I didn't do a huge number of – I think it was every few weeks from memory. Um, so we made sure I did the work in between and then we graduated uh, along the way as we could. But it, it did make a huge difference. And, and I do remember having a discussion with Beck one day because I'd got so good that I was very close, so I was having dry, yeah. dry periods, and some days were only down to about ten or fifteen before I did wow. a bad one. Um, so we thought we were going to get there, and, and I do remember Beck is with you on the journey, um, so she's very attached and very supportive, <laughs> and can get very emotional when she thinks we're going to get there. <laughs> uh, so it was it was pretty special. Um, so the time with her was both really valuable, but it was actually really, really enjoyable as well. Oh, um, good. So, yeah, yeah, no, it was, it, was, it was one of the parts. Actually, maybe I should talk about the team now because you've just started to... Yeah, well, we yeah, talk about the team. What, what uh, you really wanted to share that mm, with us. Yeah. So after all of this finished, we'll, we'll get through the rest of the journey shortly, but what, what I realised was that I actually had this whole support team working for and with me. Um, so originally the GP, and I'm, I'm lucky I've got a terrific GP, um, and there was the one that obviously said, I think we better go and do something about your PSA. At the time he wasn't too perturbed because it wasn't excessively high, um, but fortunately it was, the, it was the tip that I needed. Then I had a surgeon, and as you commented earlier, uh, my surgeon's particularly... Uh, proactive. Enthu- proactive yeah. and enthusiastic, and I get on famously with him, um, and he's incredibly professional and good as well. Um, and remind me, we well, might come back to one of his comments about incontinence in my discussion with him because I think it's relevant to yeah. working on all of this. So I had him and then, of course, I had you in the process, uh, Joe, and then you mentioned Beck. We'll talk about Melissa later on. Uh, then had another surgeon involved. I had the prostate cancer nurses from, um, from Hollywood, uh, which is where I had my surgery. I had a continence nurse called Leslie there who's mid to late 70s. Um, so I really had this support team that were covering all the bases and when I thought about how it all integrated and you two integrate really well but the other people do in their own yep. way as yep. well um, and I just thought if you're going to do the hard yards like me think about who could be on your team think mm. about who's with you and I haven't mentioned family and I haven't mentioned mates and I haven't mentioned my brother who went through this earlier than I did and he had a pretty good run actually uh, my younger brother but I think the notion of saying that you're actually not by yourself, mm. there are professionals and others around and you need to be aware of who could best support you. And sometimes that, that's a discovery. Mm. I had no idea that people like Melissa exist. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so it's all of that. So it's always a discovery, but you know, just being aware of uh, there's a lot out there and you actually don't be and you shouldn't be alone or just relying on one or two people. What are you doing with this? If you're going to be in the long haul in particular. And that's actually a really um, good point as well because when I first entered this profession working in men's health, it was back in 2005, there wasn't really the support network to the same level. There was a physiotherapist and maybe the sexual health physician, but not usually. Um, There was no prostate cancer nurses and now the Prostate Cancer Foundation actually has nurses. There were urology nurses, but you tend to see the urology nurses... um, whilst in hospital getting the catheter removed. But things have changed and I know PCFA, Prostate Cancer Foundation of Australia, is now um, producing I think close to 100 uh, nurses Australia-wide now that you can access. And they're they're a neutral 
um, party that you can, you know, if you're diagnosed with prostate cancer, can ring up and get some advice. So there's been massive growth in, in that team. So, so I think it's a really important thing to raise that men shouldn't feel alone and uh, we probably give you too much information almost these days mm. prior to surgery. But um, if you have the, that sort of pamphlet and folder on hand, an occasional rifle back through might reveal some contacts that you didn't pick, pick up initially because you didn't, might need them because things do change over the, over the process. So, yeah, thanks for, for raising that, that team approach. Now let's move on to what eventually happened with your consonants. And this was um, a period of time where you would get this variation that would sort of hover between even 10 to 40 grams of leakage. And you were very active. You did the Bustleton... Um, was it? Oh, the jetty swim. The jetty swim. Yeah. But you had I a goal. I did half of that one. So I didn't do the full one. Yeah, but you yeah. had a goal for your 50th oh, yeah. wedding anniversary. Yeah. And that goal was to what? <laughs> good man. Um, so that goal was to walk the Cape to Cape, uh, which we'd done back in 97. We do a lot of walking. So today. what's the Cape to Cape for those who don't know us uh, in so Western Australia? Uh, depending which way you walk, we walk south. So we started at Cape Naturalist and finished at Cape Lewin. So it's 135 kilometres. Uh, so it's normally for most people six, seven days walk. Uh, that was the, that was the plan. How long did it take you guys? Uh, in the end, because we always said we're going to have a rest day. Yeah. It was our wedding anniversary. Yeah. It's fun to enjoy. Of it? course. <laughs> so the idea was do four days, have a day off, do the other four days. Fantastic. Take our time. Not, yeah. not, not, not to push ourselves. Um, and that seemed a very easy goal when I set it. Well, we set it. I, I raised the idea back in probably about February. And our wedding anniversary wasn't until October. So that seemed very, very doable. Well, I just want to tell you that I, my husband has a stuffed foot at the moment and can't walk anywhere with me. And I use you and your wife as the pin-up couple and say, I've got this lovely patient and him and his wife did the Cape to Cape for their 50th wedding anniversary. So get your bloody act together. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, I'm causing you trouble. <laughs> but you wanted to do the Cape to Cape yeah. and that 50th wedding anniversary dry. Absolutely, yeah. That was was part of the plan. The plan. So we ended up suggesting you go and get some urodynamics. Mm -hmm. That's an assessment of pressure flows Mm -hmm. of the bladder and the sphincters and it often reveals exactly what we might need to do and to whether or not uh, the pelvic floor muscles are ever going to have enough sort of capacity to overcome the the downward pressure, Mm -hmm. the intra-abdominal pressure that occurs with activity. And... Talk about the urodynamic test. We haven't actually mentioned that before, I don't think, Melissa. No, we haven't. But it's a fairly invasive test. And um, do you yeah. remember what involved well, first, with that? First of all, I was, I was my surgeon suggested it in November the previous year. He said we normally wait 12 months. Yes. But you're having problems and I think you should. Mm. So I booked it and they put, gave me a fairly urgent appointment in a couple of weeks rather than a couple of months. And then because I started to make a bit of progress, I said, nah. <laughs> my goal was always to get there naturally. You know, yeah. make it, I'm going to make it. So we parked it and, and the, uh, the reception people at the, um, the specialists were quite concerned. They said, no, you really should come in. So anyway, we parked it. Uh, <laughs> so it was then some months later when we were back into the same territory because we hadn't got there. So, yeah, we went along and I went along and did the, uh, the tests. And 21st of July, so it was actually was eight months surgery. later. That was the surgery. Oh, sorry, that was the surgery. Yeah, so it was probably, I haven't actually checked on the date, but it's usually a couple of months gap, so I'm guessing it was probably April, something like that, that I, that I went Oh, uh, April, yep, it's uh, April. So uh, I don't find those sorts of things overly invasive, um, but, th- but they can be because essentially they're pumping fluid in one. So one tell us exactly, what did they do? <laughs> you want all the gory I want we all do, the we gory do. For anyone listening, did we they don't have a stick a tube up the end of him and yeah, poke no, stuff up there? Yeah, they put a tube up the back and they, they, they pump things through and it comes out the other end and they're just seeing what can be held and what can't Hang be on. held. Hang on, put a tube up the back. Hmm? Yeah. yeah. In your rectum. So where they put it? Didn't they? Must have, because it was coming out, it was the other way around. Didn't they put it in your penis? Well, there's one in the penis. And is there it's two? It's got to be pumped through, so it's got to come out the other way. So that's interesting, trying to think back on it. That is. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Okay, so, so it goes in one way and out another. 
basically they're pumping a lot of fluid into the into the into the bladder and they're seeing how much it can hold and how it responds. And they're doing things like how you're going sitting down lying. Uh, how you go with this when you cough? How you go when you sneeze? So they're testing you while you've got the. So they're actually the getting as much fluid in there and testing and seeing how much they can before you start to leak and so on. Yep. So they're basically putting through all the normal daily functions of uh, building urine, holding urine, passing urine. That's essentially what they're doing with the tubes. So I've just looked up. I've googled it because clearly I know nothing about urine. Only penis working. So urodynamic testing is a procedure that looks how well the bladder, sphincters and urethra are storing and releasing urine. Most urodynamic tests focus on the bladder's ability to hold and empty steadily and completely. But then, wait, there's more. We get to how is it performed. Let's find out what orifice things go in here. <laughs> so, oh, we can watch a video if you want to go and get really excited. But basically, they use digital equipment to test and measure the urine flow and the pressure of the bladder and the rectum. Yep, they were. They were in both holes. Yep. Um, The equipment takes images of your bladder filling and emptying. So there you go. It sounds awful, but you're telling us, Mr. P, that it's not. Well, I, well, you must be I, very positive because I've only heard no, 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 no urodynamic. Again. I, I was talking to a wonderful nurse and discussing all sorts of things and and she was just doing the test. So, no, for me, it was just whatever whatever it had to be. Uh, mm-hmm. But the very um, – and they also do a little uh, – they do a flexible cystoscopy yep. as well. Yeah, uh, I had one of those before with my surgeon and, and again – um, I don't find that an invasive procedure because essentially, for those that are not aware, yes, they put a, another tube up your penis so then they have a look at your bladder and what's going on in there and you can actually look at the screen and discuss it. At with the same so, time, yeah. So, and it's a very quick and simple procedure with a, with a local and it, it's, it's really it's all done in a few minutes. So I'd say to people, don't get phased about that one. Mm. The, the, we'll, the other one is a longer, the yeah. urodynamics test is, is longer. Um, and what yeah. was the result of the urodynamic test? What what got explained to you? Um, what it did show was a confusing picture because it was showing that I had very poor control of my bladder and they couldn't work out how I'd achieved the results I had. So why was I doing as well as I was? Because the urodynamic said I should not be doing anywhere near that's that. That's the long. magic of the pelvic floor and all the work you do with exactly. Beck. And yeah, so that's yeah. what I said to you. Well done. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what we've done together had actually got me to where I was, um, and it did raise a very serious question about which surgical intervention to do because it was clear I needed one or the other. Mm. So did we go the artificial sphincter or did we go for the uh, the bladder sling? And with almost with misgivings. My surgeon said, well, let's try the sling and see how we get on. And I was very favourable of the sling. So for those who don't know, the sling is tending to be when there's more minor leakage. Um, It tends to be really favourable with uh, leakage that's under 100 grams per 24 hours. And it can – it's often used even with men up to 300 grams leakage, whereas the artificial urethral sphincter is for the more severe incontinence, which is that sort of 350-plus – Urinalic, is a much more invasive procedure. Uh, it is a highly successful procedure, but because you're putting in mechanical parts, there are the risks of breakdown mm. and also infection, and they do tend to need to be replaced after 10 or so years. Um, the good news is that you can trial with a, with a uh, sling, and if that's not successful, you can actually upgrade to an artificial mm. sphincter. So I always felt that given all that, pelvic floor work that we'd done that you were going to be the perfect sling um patient option and so you ended up having that procedure and i know it took you a little while to make your mind up but you went ahead and tell us about what happened well part of it was sort of sitting back with me because my my surgeon we talked about incontinence and we talked about all the side effects of having the surgery and the only one that really caused me to register concern was incontinence. That mm. was the one that I thought, that's, I don't want to live with that. The other things, I can live with all the other issues and outcomes, but that's the one I don't want. And as you said, well, I've only ever had two out of 300 patients, Jack, so here's 
Yeah. Happy Jack thinking, well, all all goes well for me and I'm fit and I'm healthy. I've got no early signs. So why would it happen for me? Mm. So I progressed Not even from 1% that. Of his patients, suddenly, yeah. so I've ruined his statistics because he's now got three. <laughs> um, and uh, so it was against all the odds that I was going to get to this point. However, um, what I felt I'd done was prove that with all the best support and assistance, I couldn't get there naturally. And yeah. that was always something for me. Mm. I'll have surgery if I need to have surgery. But until I get to that point, I've got to keep pushing the boundary. Mm-hmm. So I felt comfortable with making the decision about the surgery. Um, and my surgeon knew the goal, which was October. The 50th wedding anniversary, Mike. Um, and surgery is 21st of July. Mm-hmm. And then you've got six weeks of next to nothing. Mm. Very gentle life. And um, so that left me with less than four weeks before the start of the Cape to Cape. So we're doing it individually and it's just the two of us. So we're tied to anybody else. We could do our own thing. Um, And so afterwards we said, it looks like it's worked. What about doing the Cape to Cape? And I hadn't done any exercise. Okay. Um, And her basic approach was, well, just see how you go. Yeah. So her basic being your surgeon? The surgeon. Yeah. Yeah. Not your wife, sorry. (laughs) Yeah. Not my wife. Uh, She was... Pretty much the same attitude as well. Yep. So I did three and a half weeks of literal boot camp where I just built it up. Yep. Changed our plan and did the first four days with just a day pack instead of doing uh, camping out with a full pack. Uh, had our rest day as planned and then put the backpack on for the second half. And how was the continents? Now, it's brilliant. Um, so basically the sling worked. Um, how so quickly it, did it work? It took a little bit of adjustment. Uh, so it was already dramatically better. So the first thing was I got pretty consistent and then I'd just have a few days where there might just be a bit of small dribble. Um, and do you still have that now or not? A, no, that's gone? No, no. I didn't have anything when I was on the wall. Well. That quickly it changed. Mm. Um, so the only thing that I noticed, and every now and then it comes and goes now, is I can have a little bit at night. Oh, okay. Um, so I can have a, a little leakage at night, but I might go two or three weeks and not have anything. But there is a little, there's still a little recurrence at Do night. Do you have to wear time. any pads at all? If I'm travelling now, if I'm in somebody else's house and somebody else's bed, I will think about whether I wear a pad at night. I never, That's never so do ironic. That's so ironic. Yeah. 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 You're the yeah. other way around. Yeah. yeah, so it's really odd. So, I've actually uh, not come across that before either. Yeah. So, so during the day, if I stay with that, mm. after a... After a couple of weeks, mm. I didn't think about it. So I was Great. careful. I had the odd little leakage, um, very small leakage during the day, and then that stopped. So, yes, once I did the walk, once I went on the walk, that was it. So put the backpack on, all of that, not a, not a problem. So days have been, been great. So I never think about it now. It's, it's not an What issue. happens if you have a wine? Does that? I was thinking that. Was mm. there a celebratory drink? And oh, does that impact on you? There's celebratory drinks along the way. <laughs> So I live in a street which is a very uh, very close-knit street and a lot of fun in our street. So last night, yesterday afternoon, we started at 3.30. We <laughs> finished about 8.30 and we did wine tasting in eight houses up and down the street. Wow, that's epic. And did the sling hold up to the wine <laughs> tasting? Did the sling survive it? Well, not only that, I, I, uh, I went to the toilet before I had the first drink. <laughs> He's going to show off now. And I went when I came home at 8.30. Five there you go, later. five hours wow. later. I wonder how many others did a few little pee stops. <laughs> yeah. Well, there was eight houses to go. Sort of but Very so impressive. Thing, but it's, um, so generally it's been good. I've obviously got a, sometimes at night there might, that might be the suspect night. But yeah. there's no pattern. There's no. no pattern. I can't say that if I'm going to have a slight leak at night, that. And I never used to before the sling, which is interesting. Every now and then it was yeah. one. It's, it's slightly different now. So if I have a leak at night, it's only a small one. Um, and I can't see a pattern. So I might do you still do pelvic floor exercises? That's a really good question. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, um, so I, after, the, after the sling surgery, when I had the final appointment with the surgeon, she said, you don't need to do any more pelvic floor exercises. As in a sense, the problem solved. So I didn't for a few weeks mm-hmm. um, 
but after talking with you, and I am back doing them, and they are. I said they're making a difference, but I might also use some uh, some medication that uh, my surgeon's also not. Sunny's not so sure either. Okay. Yep. But I haven't. I haven't used that. Um, oh, he, he recommended some medication just to help with that. Okay. Yep. But, so I have it, but I haven't used it. Okay. Um, so I, it's me being natural again. I want to yeah. see what I can do. Yeah. Um, so it's only a small problem and it's unpredictable. Yeah. Um, but I, the way we're going, I think I can get on top of it. Well, one of the reasons I actually always encourage patients to continue doing pelvic floor exercises even after the sling, because I work with three different surgeons who do this and two say continue doing pelvic floor and one says don't worry about it. So there's always, you know, individual experience. But there is um, the ageing process. So even though the sling is going to be, you know, a helpful device, uh, as we get older, we get a little bit weaker. So my number one thing is if you can just have that habit of pelvic floor being part of your day anyway. There's no reason why, you know, not to continue doing that. I have had patients come back to see me. They may have been completely continent and dry for five or more years following surgery and then return with some incontinence. It's usually because they've stopped doing pelvic floor exercises. Obviously, they've got older. Mostly, they've also become inactive. So the pelvic floor really needs to be... Um, activated or switched on in upright postures so when you lie down at night and that's a mystery for me too to try and understand why you're looking at night the pelvic floor doesn't really fatigue so we don't tend to see much leakage at night even from very early on in some of the wettest patients uh so at night time yeah 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 and I think because we probably haven't talked about my age, so maybe we'll put this into a context yes. for where we are. Mm. How old are you? So I'm <laughs> 72 when I was diagnosed mm. uh, and I'll be 75 in April. Mm. Okay, so Peter Dornan, who is my uh, always go-to men's health um, physiotherapist, he went through this as a 50-year-old man and he actually developed a whole lot of exercises and published a book called Conquering Incontinence. And we really must actually interview mm. uh, Peter one day. He actually got to 70 and he said if he stopped doing his pelvic floor exercises, within a month he became leaky again. And I remember he made oh. the comment and he said, I think I'm going to have to go and get the sling one day. And he was still extremely fit. And then when he was 73, he did actually end up getting it. And he mm. said that was really helpful that he still – needs to do his pelvic floor exercises. The interesting thing about pelvic floor, though, as well, it also helps with your sexual function and your back and your core strength, doesn't it? So and also it, bowel function. It's good for mm. everything else. So yeah. not just to give it up Balance. because you've got the yeah. sling in there sort of seems like a bit of an oxymoron to me because you still want to keep all those other things going. Yeah. Mm. Is that um, right, Joe? Should you? Oh, yep, totally yeah. agree with that. Yeah. No, and I'm a, a believer in doing regular exercises for... Oh, yeah, you've been one of our fittest patients so ever. So... so to me, why not just build it into a yeah. routine? So no, yeah. it's, it's back in the routine. That's good to hear. Now, we haven't uh, – usually when I see patients, every single consult, I always discuss both erectile function and continence function. And this brings me to Melissa mm -hmm. because because we had so many kind of issues with the continence and you'd always said the erectile function was not the biggest priority for you. Um, it wasn't an area that we or your surgeon – really put a lot of emphasis on. But then a time came where it, it was important for you to have a look at that um, aspect of your recovery. And you met Melissa, was it about nine or ten months after the nine surgery? Nine months post-op, mm. yeah. Yeah, so that was a little more delayed than what we normally introduced the sexual yeah. um, rehabilitation mm. into our... And from the outset, it was very clear that Mr P had mm. a very loving, lovely relationship with his wife and that actual intercourse wasn't really the be-all and end-all for you, mm. was it? So we did, you know, some rehabilitation to mm. keep everything healthy, but that wasn't the whole idea. Um, so I was really interested in, like, you've been together for 50-plus years now. Like, how did you, like, how did you negotiate all of this and how did you feel about it and how do you still show love and intimacy without that being a major issue? Um, well, first of all, Initially, I came to see you for penile health. Exactly, yeah. So, uh, which is a whole new area for me. I had no idea such people existed like you <laughs> said earlier. I had no idea we needed to be aware of penile health. Yeah. So, that was the first reason. That struck me as making common sense like any other muscle mm. or part of our body. Exactly. Uh, pay attention to it. So, 
that's how we started. Mm. Um, so if I go back, because I mentioned earlier, talking to my surgeon at the outset, we talked about the likely um, outcomes from the surgery and, and we talked about the, um, the sexual function and that was not going to be a major issue one way or the other mm-hmm. uh, for me. Uh, it was really see what happens. After the surgery, there was 60% nerve sparing. So he was of the view that sexual function uh, would be restored probably with medication, but not without. Yeah. Um, so we sort of left it at that and focused on the incontinence. Um, so it really was sort of sort of sitting there. So I swept the context from the relationship point of view is that um, yeah, we've always shared so much together, done so much together. Um, yeah, it has always been a loving relationship. And, um, and I guess over the more recent years, there have been less sex in the relationship. So mm. it was really when it happened, it happened type thing. Uh, and I guess in fairness, like most blokes, probably more regularly, less regularly than I would like. <laughs> um, Haven't heard that before. But it <laughs> um, was never really an issue in that sense. So mm. to me, it's it's two people and, and, and you do it when you both enjoy it. So we'd sort of got to this point anyway where we did when we didn't and we didn't when we didn't and, and everything else was wonderful. Um, so... The, the sort of the physical contact it was really just about the cuddles and the snuggles and the fondling and that was it and yeah. so the actual sexual function wasn't wasn't crucial to mm. the relationship um, and we both went into it knowing we, it may not ha- happen again um, and that wasn't um, the end of the world no um, and so we sort of approached it on that basis with so I had high expectations about everything else yeah that was the one I didn't have high expectations mm. about so it was great um, and my wife is, is a very, very pragmatic person. Being a physio has a lot of mm-hmm. the right understanding in, in this area. So that helps in terms of, I guess, what the implications were of the surgery and what was going on for me physically. So we then um, we were just focused on getting me well after the surgery. We were excited because the cancer, was, um, everything's been successful from that point of view. Um, and so that was always the major, the major focus. Mm. Um, and so when we did something like the Cape to Cape, it was just fantastic because mm. um, that's what we do together. Exactly. And we still had times when we were we were affectionate, mm. um, but it was never going to be any more than that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so we've done a couple of things to check sexual um, erection capacity, erectile function and so on. Um and it's limited. Mm. There, there is arousal, there is responsiveness, um, there's been no erection. Um, mm. And we did try to see if any medication was going to help. Um, and we did that solo. Um, <laughs> and uh, it didn't make a particularly significant impact. But so. I think the thing that's so great with you is your attitude to it, which is, you know, that. You know, you don't get a hard erection anymore, but you still enjoy intimacy with your partner and you still have a loving, affectionate relationship. Mm. And you can be so positive about that. And I think that's a really good message that it's great to try. Mm. And if you're really gung ho about it, there's things you can do. But that mm. doesn't, it's not the be all and end all for a lot mm. of people. And I think that's just really important. And yeah. But I think that's very much, uh, there's two people in that discussion. Mm. So I'm very lucky I've got a partner yes. that has that approach. Yeah. Doesn't have other expectations. So mm. Sounds like uh, you're great communicators though. Um, you know, talking, we, mm. it's been a big theme of what we're trying to um, encourage people to do, to uh, talk to their partners about these topics that are a little bit more mm. confronting and difficult to manage. But um, we even had, you know, our, our young um, guest in Pike earlier today who mm. said that it led to the relationship breakdown in his um first um you know significant relationship that he didn't talk about it and so when he had erectile dysfunction issues in his next relationship he bought it on the table at the very first opportunity and that changed everything the dynamics so communication yeah well, I couldn't agree more, but of course, I, as a leadership coach, it sits front and centre with yeah. what I do. Anyway. But it always I was has, thinking it always that, has yeah. in our relationship. Mm. Um, and so we we talked when we, when we were having our kids that we had um, basically a couple of criteria. And the, and the first one was we wanted them to grow up happy and healthy and, and independent. And the second one was communication. Mm. Yeah. 
so that we knew that the kids could talk to us about anything. They mostly did. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so like, Not everything. We still laugh about it and say, yeah, yeah, we told you most things. Um, <laughs> but we had to actually do that because that's what we see as important as well. So I guess we've always lived that way. Mm. Um, you know, always talk about everything, but uh, we do communicate well. Yeah. Well, I think we've communicated pretty awesomely today. We've covered mm. everything from incontinence to penile clamps to surgeries to the team effort and, you know, being comfortable without penetrative sex being a high um, item on the agenda because for a lot of our patients it's exactly the opposite. And and just listening um, to you talk with us, what is most refreshing to me is that every man's experience is so unique and we really wanted to talk to someone who wouldn't mind giving us a bit more of a negative picture on the continent side of it because a lot of our previous discussions have really been probably almost um, the opposite extreme, almost um, too good. So we've really valued the opportunity for you to sit with us and share a not-so-easy story but remain extremely positive. So thank you so much. Yeah. My pleasure. And we got there. I say we got there. Yeah, <laughs> and you've, I mean, it's just so great. Like I just think oh, this is made-up word I always use, which is stickability, and you've shown that. You know, you've stuck at it until you got the outcome, which is you can get back to your normal function and live a normal life. And it's just a long road, but you got there. So it's great. So thank you so much for coming in. We really appreciate it. And congratulations on your 50th wedding anniversary. That is major stickability in these days. Exactly. (laughs) The only thing that's always worried me, somebody said, uh, congratulations on on your uh, gold wedding anniversary. And I hadn't thought of it in that context. Oh. So growing up, I'd always thought when people had golden wedding anniversaries, they were so old. Like a hundred. So (laughs) decrepit. Hold on. I'm just having that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't feel that way at all. So, anyway, so it's easy to talk about the 50 rather than the golden. Yeah, okay. We'll mention 50 50. All right. Thank you so much. Campfires and birds, smoking bark in a cubby up a tree. Hi, this is Dr. Joe. Thank you so much for listening to our program today. And we're pleased to let you know that we will be having weekly podcasts, not fortnightly, as originally proposed. And this is because of the popularity of our podcast. We're getting so many emails, so many questions, and so much feedback, and Melissa and I greatly appreciate it. What we'd really love you to do is share our podcast with anyone you think might benefit, including any man in your life. Simply download off Spotify or... Subscribe to thepenisproject.org and then you'll get a weekly email of our newest releases. Also feel free to send us a review. And this will greatly help in our ongoing ability to bring you new and fresh information as that's the way we build what comes next. We also have show notes attached and this gives a bit of a background into any additional resources or explanations of what we're talking about. Finally, it's my great pleasure to let you know that PROST, the exercise program which sponsors our podcast, is now available on a USB resource for any man diagnosed with prostate cancer, an exercise program. Clinicians can buy these as well as the everyday bloke. So feel free to check out prost.com.au. Meanwhile, let's keep the conversation going. Of the sun, we're just having too much fun.